Um, he had an appointment he had to get to. He said, I just have one question. Why are you part of such a religion of hate? When you begin your tour at Yad Vashem, one of the first things you read is from a Christian theologian. We see throughout the ages that Christians have erred in some major ways when it comes to Israel and the Jewish people. You are listening to the Tov Podcast. Well, welcome to the Tove Podcast. My name's Levi Hazen, and I'm excited for my colleague, Wes Tabor, uh, to return to the Tove Podcast today as we talk about a rather concerning subject. And I've, I've mentioned this uh, a few weeks ago about the rise of anti-Semitism here in the United States. And uh, I am holding in my hands here an article from the ADL. The ADL is the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, It's been around for a while, and it exists to educate uh, folks about anti-Semitism. It exists to be a voice against uh, the hatred of the Jewish people. And um, they uh, oftentimes conduct surveys in terms of how the U.S. population or the world population um, is feeling about the Jewish people, and they track anti-Semitic incidences across the world. And the, the, uh, the article here uh, says some things uh, that I wanted to relay to you that are, that are pretty concerning. The title of the article is, Following Start of Mideast Violence, Anti-Semitic Incidents More Than Double in May 2021 versus May 2020. And I'm not going to read the whole article for you, but I just wanted to highlight that 60% of our American Jewish friends personally witnessed anti-Semitism during May. That's shocking, Wes. That's a huge percentage. Yeah. In May, the Anti-Defamation League logged 251 incidents starting on May 11th, which was the official start of military action between the IDF and Hamas. Uh, 251 incidents through the end of the month, which was an increase of 115% over the same period last year. The entirety of May, there were 305 anti-Semitic incidents tallied. Um, Now, just so you're aware, the ADL classifies incidents in three different categories. Uh, Harassment, so someone comes up and they verbally... Um, harass a Jewish person, vandalism. So we see this quite often when uh, synagogues or even Jewish cemeteries are vandalized, and physical assault. Uh, From May 11th through May 31st of 2021, there were 190 cases of harassment just in the United States. There were 50 cases of vandalism and 11 assaults. 47% of these incidences, so 118 total, included explicit references to Israel and Zionism. So, to me, Wes, this is classic anti-Semitism. When you take the actions 
of a group of people who are across the ocean, and you apply them to the local Jewish community right in front of you. Uh, that's textbook anti-Semitism. And so that's why, partly why, this is so concerning to me. Yes, these are not just uh, random acts of violence, which get reported in the newspaper all the time, uh, news media, but we see ADL statistics specifically when Jewish people are targeted because of their ethnicity. Mm -hmm. It's because they're Jewish that they're attacked. Yeah. In fact, uh, in one of these instances, on May 18th, diners at a Los Angeles kosher restaurant, so clearly... Uh, any anti-Semites are going to look at a kosher restaurant and believe most of the people eating there are probably Jewish. So these folks are walking by this restaurant, and they attacked individuals. Um, the attackers were carrying Palestinian flags, and they said the following, you should be ashamed of yourselves simply for being Jewish. Mm-hmm. And another instance, during a May 15th rally in Washington, D.C., marchers chanted in Arabic, um, Oh, Kaibar, Kaibar, oh, you Jews, the army of Mohammed shall return, end quote. Uh, this chant refers to the siege and uh, subjugation of Jews of the town of Kaibar by the prophet Muhammad and his army and is an implicit threat toward the Jewish people today. So, and then, you know, right in our backyard here, unfortunately, Chicago has a long history actually of being um, philo-Semitic, of loving the Jewish people. There's been a lot of cases through the years of believers standing up against anti-Semitism, including the founder of Life and Messiah, William Blackstone, uh, who certainly spoke out against anti-Semitism and sought to love the Jewish people in the name of Jesus. Uh, A protester at a May 12th rally in Chicago held a sign that featured a swastika drawn inside of a Jewish Star of David with an accompanying message referencing, quote, Nazi Zionist Jews, end quote. So, Wes, I'm going to hand things over to you. Um, Can we start with the foundation here of Israel's special relationship to God? Sure. I think since Life and Messiah's mission statement is sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, sometimes people say, well, God loves all people, and that's absolutely true. But God has a special relationship with Israel. We often quote, for example, Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with everlasting kindness I have drawn you. And we use that as an example of the magnificence of God's marvelous love for his people. And we include ourselves because we are believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so we can make an application from that verse. But specifically the audience that God has in mind in that New Covenant passage is the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's talking to Jewish people when he says, it's you whom I've loved. I think it's helpful to have the perspective that whatever God especially loves, Satan especially hates. Mm. I go back to Deuteronomy, you know, where God chose the Jewish people. Sometimes <laughs> people want to argue if the Jewish people are God's chosen people, and even Jewish people sometimes struggle with this. I I'm laughing because I think of that wonderful scene from Fiddler on the Roof where Tevi the milkman, you know, he's having problems with his horse and, you know, the wagon's breaking down. He wants to get home for Shabbat and he's he's kind of arm wrestling with God about how difficult life is and, you know, if we're the chosen people, how come life's so tough and, and, and it's more than just the 
personal challenges. It's also the fact that the community is under siege with the pogroms. And uh, he looks up to heaven and says, you know, if this is what it means to be chosen, why don't you choose somebody else for a while? Mm. But that concept of chosenness is really important. And it's not so much that the Jewish people chose God, although I know that's part of Jewish tradition, that at Sinai the Jewish people, unlike the other nations, said we're going to uh, hear and obey whatever God commands. Uh, That's a nice story, but it's extra biblical. There's no indication of representatives from other nations receiving the Torah. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, you know, who has a God like we do is Israel's statement, but Deuteronomy 7 is the one that I want to really focus on because that's where God says, um, I didn't choose you because you were more in number than the people, but because I loved you, right? So because the Lord loved you and because of the promises that he made to the fathers. And his motivation then is love, which shouldn't shock us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But he also made specific promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he made to no one else, regarding the land, the seed, and the blessing, as you've referenced many times here on the Tove podcast. But he chose him for a purpose. It was, his motivation was love and covenant faithfulness. But he chose him for a purpose, and that was to be a light to the nations. Uh, they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they're his representatives on earth to the point where God identifies himself. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. So there's a uniqueness to the relationship that God has with the Jewish people. And because of that, whatever God especially loves, Satan especially hates. And to my mind, there is no explanation for the length, the depth, the breadth of anti-Semitism apart from the spiritual side of it. You can start all the way back in the Old Testament with the story of the Exodus where Pharaoh wants to kill all the baby boys. Well, after a generation, if you kill off all the males, then the women are going to intermarry and the people are going to assimilate. So that's the very first example of what uh, Satan's attempt at we could call genocide occurs mm. because of this special relationship. So there's no question that the Jewish people are God's chosen people. He uses specific language, uh, for example, using family analogy, when he's talking about the Jewish people in Egypt, he refers to them as his firstborn son. That's Exodus 4, 22. And then in Jeremiah, he refers to Israel as his wife. He says, I was a husband to to Israel. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's that analogy of a special spousal relationship. And he uses the expression segula, which is a treasured possession. You know, if God forbid you were to go home and find your home on fire and you could only rush in and grab one thing, what would that be? Well, whatever that is, is your segula. It's your treasured possession. It's what you most want to protect and value. And God uses that language in uh, Exodus 19.5, Deuteronomy 14.2. And everybody's familiar with the expression, the apple of his eye. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And we know how protective we are of our eyes. That's Zechariah 2.8. Yeah. So those are examples of the special terminology that God uses for the Jewish people. Yeah, recently uh, you've, you've spoken um, about the connection between some of the things in the book of Esther— and anti-Semitism. 
And yeah. I wondered if you could you could nail down that for us. Yeah, it's fresh in my mind because uh, we had a local pastor who came to visit headquarters for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and as we sat and talked, uh, he got more interested in what our purposes are, and he asked if I would come and speak. And for the first time in 45 years of ministry that I can remember, a uh, pastor asked me to speak on God's heart for the Jewish people and specifically about anti-Semitism. Hmm. Uh, and this is the passage that I chose to speak from was the book of Esther. And, you know, Esther's a long enough narrative that we don't have time to encapsulate it all here, but it, it begins with the queen being uh, dethroned, with Vashti being set aside and, uh, you know, Queen Esther being chosen to replace her. And then we hear about Uncle Mordecai. But by the time you get up to chapter 3, we're introduced to the villain of the piece, the wicked Haman, right? And he's promoted by Ahasuerus, that's Ahasuerus in Hebrew, otherwise known as Xerxes in his um, Greek name. But he is set above all the princes who are with him. And so this is a guy you think about like Joseph, who's promoted to second in command back in Egypt. That's the position that Haman is in. Now we're in the Persian Empire, right? This is the uh, these are the folks who took over after Babylon, and you've got this megalomaniac who is filled with pride and now is in ascendancy and power, uh, and everybody has to bow down to him. That's the king's command. You know, you need to honor this guy. But guess who doesn't? When he comes through the king's gate, everybody's bowing down, and they look around, and here's this guy standing up. This is very reminiscent of the story of Daniel with the refusal of the Hebrews to bow down to the image of the king. And so they ask him, why do you transgress the king's command? You know, Why are you not doing what the law says you have to do? And it just says, for Mordecai had told him that he was a Jew, and Mm -hmm. he would not listen to them. And so it's because of his Jewishness, and perhaps he quoted the fact that you know we're to worship God and God alone. Um, but they identified him as Jewish when they go and report on him. And some things never change, Levi. You know, human nature is human nature. And these guys didn't like Morty, and they wanted to get rid of him, and so they go and talk to Haman. And Haman is obviously not happy about this. There's this one little peon who won't bow down to him. He's filled with wrath. And here's the thing that's striking about this and why I say there has to be a satanic root to anti-Semitism. If you look at verse 6 of chapter Mm 3, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So there's 127 provinces in this empire, and Haman hates one guy. Now, on what scale do you measure the hatred of one man for another that he wants to kill him? Well, that happens all the time. I mean, here in the Chicago area, you open up the news, and every day there's some gangland slaying, right? Somebody hates somebody. If you really want to teach a lesson, you know, an organized crime, you not only kill your enemy, but you maybe kill some family members as well to really send a message. But killing his cousins and his extended family in his neighborhood and and in the whole state and in the whole country and in all of the countries where you have access to people. I mean, there's no way that you can say that that's not satanic in Mm -hmm. my view. Right. So here's Haman and he goes about trying to set up the um, extinction and he goes to the king. And if you just want to look quickly at, how he 
accuses Mordecai, he says in verse 8, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Look, their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. And this is where we get the idea of um, assimilation, right? You cannot live among us as Jews. Here's the problem. These people have different laws, different culture, different customs, um, and he even accuses him of not obeying the king's laws. As far as we know, the only law that he didn't keep, Mordecai that is, is he didn't bow down to Haman. Mm-hmm. There's no record of him being a lawbreaker other than that. In fact, the record is that he supported the king. But you cannot live among us as Jews is basically what he's saying to the king. These people are different and they don't belong here. And then he says, therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. So this is not, you cannot live among us as Jews. This is, you cannot live among us. So this is not just assimilate. This is evacuate. This is get rid of these people, kick them out of the kingdom. Mm. And that would be bad enough. But then he says in verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. And now we get to the worst end of the spectrum. You cannot live. Mm. Annihilate. So assimilate, evacuate, annihilate. You see them all right here, but Haman moves right along the spectrum until he says, we need to destroy him. And I'll tell you what, I'll get out my checkbook and I'll write whatever the expenses are to kill all these citizens of your kingdom who we don't like. And for whatever reason, the king listens to Haman and he says, the money and the people are given to you in verse 11. Do with them as seems good to you. He gives Haman the credit card and the approval and letters are sent by couriers to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. The Hebrew really underscores what's happening here by using three different verbs in verse 13. All the Jews, young and old, little children and women in one day, I mean, this is breathtaking stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then it says in verse 15, uh, the king and Haman sat down to to drink. So they're going to have a little little party on this. And the people of Shushan are perplexed. The people can't figure out what's going on here. So I think this is a primary example of how Satan gets into the heart of individuals to hate the Jewish people. Yeah. Can, Can we review those three terms again? That you use the first one, uh, Haman did not want the Jews to well to live as Jews. So the word is to Jews. assimilate, and and Jewish people have assimilated into wider culture in many places and many times in history. Um, sometimes forcibly so, they were made to assimilate, and sometimes they chose to assimilate. Uh, the difference between an ultra orthodox neighborhood. Uh, where Jewish people are readily identifiable by their dress and their their customs, uh, it still holds true today. But there are lots of Jewish people who live in neighborhoods and there's no identifier. In fact, as anti-Semitism increases, Levi, you find Jewish people who are unwilling to identify publicly as Jewish people. So men who've traditionally worn a yarmulke, the, the kippah, the skull cap, uh, as an identifier as being Jewish, in many places in Europe today, particularly in France, uh, you hear stories of men who say, I can't wear this in public anymore. Yeah, sad. Right. So assimilate means you can live among us 
but not as Jews. You can't be identified as Jews. If you're going to live here, you have to assimilate into wider Gentile culture. Mm, don't be different from us. Right. Okay. And then the next one was well, evacuate. The second is evacuate, right? We're going to kick you out of here if you don't, uh, if, if you're going to insist on living as Jews, right? So if you're not going to assimilate, then we're going to kick you out. That's yeah. evacuate. And then the worst form is murder. That's yeah. the annihilate. That's the annihilate. It seems to me like there's almost a another form, um, and I don't know quite quite how to phrase it, but today's anti-Semitism uh, is a little bit less of you know, this Jewish family down the road is different and we want them out of here to now that Jewish state in the Middle East is causing all the world's problems. And not only that, but anybody who supports them, anybody who views them as a legitimate state is contributing to more problem, more oppression and that type of thing. Well, that's true. And and I think we need to be very careful here because as believers, we absolutely are convinced that the land belongs to the Jewish people. And that, and that's not a political statement. That's a theological statement. And all you need to do is go to Genesis 15. It's the clearest place that I know where God unconditionally promises that land. So because we can be called Christian Zionists, William Blackstone is written up in the Encyclopedia Judaica under the section of Zionism, there's a subsection called Christian Zionism, and Blackstone is, is mentioned there in a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. Right? So we can be called Christian Zionists, but I don't want to be mistaken for somebody who wraps ourselves in the Israeli flag and says, whatever Israel does, we're going to support. That's not what we mean. Right. When we say that the land belongs to the Jewish people, that's unconditional. And their ability to live in the land with God's favor and blessing and peace and prosperity is very much conditional based on what uh, Moses says at the end of Deuteronomy. His closing speech to Israel is all about the blessings and the curses, right? Yeah, that was a really helpful distinction for me when I first really started digging into the land promise. Um, you know, I've, I've heard it said before that uh, the Jewish people really shouldn't be in the land because the majority of them are detached from God. They don't have a relationship with the Messiah, and therefore, they shouldn't be there. But I think what that misses is God's sovereignty in the situation. Um, When the Jewish people are in the land throughout the whole Hebrew Bible, it's because God has deemed it so. And and they were there many times worshiping false idols and doing horrible things. That's right. And when God decides to exile them, that's his sovereign choice. And he did that numerous times from— Uh, the Roman siege of the temple to the Assyrians and and the northern kingdom to the Babylonians and so forth. So first of all, the sovereignty of God, it's his choice on on who and at what time the Jewish people are in the land or out of the land. What we also see, Wes, is that in the book of Ezekiel, it, it appears that the Jewish people are drawn back to the land in unbelief. Yes, this is the vision of the dry bones. Yeah, the vision yes. of the dry bones, which we've we've covered here on the Tove podcast before. It it seems to me that there there doesn't seem to be a problem in the minds of most believers with God using pagan nations to scatter Israel. God used the Romans. God used the Assyrians. God used the Babylonians. Everyone agrees on that. 
But when it comes to God using pagan nations to help regather Israel, now all of a sudden there seems to be an implicit bias against that. And that's that helped me to see that um, Israel has the title deed to the land and what determines whether or not they're living there is simply the sovereign choice of God. Uh, that's who determines it. It's not their behavior. And what I think that we are seeing in today's day and age is that Israel is being called back to the land in unbelief. And there's some difficult days ahead. Uh, the time of Jacob's trouble is oftentimes called because God is going to essentially purify Israel and bring them into a close relationship with himself. Well, before we uh, go any further, Wes, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And um, when we come back, I want us to finish up um, if there's anything else left to say about Esther. And then I want to move on to some key points in church history where essentially the church has really failed. And I want to talk about those because as believers, we definitely need to be aware uh, of these points in history. We'll be right back on the Tove Podcast. Since 1887, Life in Messiah has helped Christians understand the Jewish roots of our faith and God's ongoing commitment to His people. We teach that anti-Semitism is inconsistent with biblical faith and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which includes her spiritual renewal as well as physical safety. In all we do, our priority is to share the gospel message. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or at lifeinmessiah.org. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, welcome back to the Tove Podcast. Uh, we are having a discussion about anti-Semitism and uh, the spiritual root of that hatred. And I'm here with my colleague and friend, Wes Tabor, and we are taking a look at the book of Esther, which provides us uh, with an example of an anti-Semite in the character of Haman. Um, so, Wes, let's, let's finish up the book of Esther. What else... Uh, can we learn from Esther about anti-Semitism? Sure. So when we last saw Haman, back in chapter 3, he and the king were sitting down and having a little drink to celebrate the fact that all the Jewish people were going to be exterminated. So that's the uh, really dark chapter. We're going to fast forward a couple chapters to chapter 6. And, you know, the king has royal insomnia. He has the records read to him. And he hears about this guy, Mordecai, who had... Uh, turned in some plotters who wanted to assassinate the king. And the king, in the middle of the night, says, well, you know, did I give him the king's medal of honor for this wonderful thing he did in sparing my life? And the chronicler says, no, there's nothing in the record here about that. The king says, well, we got to fix that. So the next morning, when Haman shows up at the palace, the king says, you know, what should I do to honor this, uh, somebody who's really special, who's really done something praiseworthy. And Haman, of course, arrogant and filled with pride, says, well, who else could the king want to honor other than me? And so he says, well, let a royal robe be brought. The king is worn and a horse on which the king is ridden, royal crest on his head. And let the robe and the horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man with whom the king delights to honor. And parade him on horseback through the whole city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. You can just see this guy picturing himself on the king's horse and everybody bowing down, and this is going to be perfect for him. 
And then this is uh, verse 10 of chapter 6 of Esther. The king said to Haman, hurry and take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all you have spoken. It's interesting to me that the king knows that Mordecai is Jewish. It must be part of the of the record. Mm. You know, I'm not even sure if he could have picked out Mordecai by face if Mordecai had walked in. But in the record, it must have identified him as, as Jewish. So now, in one of the delightful ironies of Scripture, here's Haman with the robe and the horse, but he's not on the horse wearing the robe. He's leading Mordecai through the city. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights. And then Mordecai goes back to the king's gate. Haman goes to his house, and he's totally devastated. And so he's talking to his wife, Zeresh, and all of his buddies about, oh, woe is me. Oh, this is so horrible. And when they found out that Mordecai was Jewish, listen to this. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him but will surely fall before him. That's verse 12 or verse 13 of of chapter 6. So very much it's his ethnicity, it's his Jewishness that comes to the fore here, which is the whole point of Haman's trying to annihilate them is because they're Jewish Mm -hmm. and Zeresh and the others are saying, wait a minute, if he's Jewish, then you're not going to win. And that gives some insight into the fact that people understood the special nature of the Jewish people and the fact that they are blessed of God. Fast forward to Esther inviting the king and Haman to her house for a banquet in chapter 7. And, you know, two nights in a row they they show up. The first night Esther doesn't say what her request is, even though the king says, up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. But she says in verse 4 of chapter 7, for we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And then she says, you know, if it was just that we we're going to be sold as slaves, I wouldn't say anything. You know, it'd be the king's loss. You know, you can compensate for losing the Jewish people. You talk about a brain drain. You know, what idiocy when countries have kicked out the mm. Jewish people. Yeah. Right? Um, but the king wants to know, who is this guy who wants to kill you and all your people? And she points to wicked Haman, this adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. And you know the rest of the story, too many details here, but Harbona points to the gallows that had been erected by Mordecai to hang publicly, uh, had been erected by Haman to hang Mordecai publicly, and the king says, we'll hang him on it. And they hanged him on the gallows, and the king's wrath subsides, and letters are sent out to all the 127 provinces that say, no, if you touch the Jewish people, then we're going to kill you. So now they're under royal protection, and um, there's a party. Purim is celebrated every year. It's one of the mm. big party days. And Mordecai goes out from the presence of the king, and he's he's now rewarded by the king, apparel of blue and white, a great crown of gold and a garment. So... He who was to be destroyed has now been elevated. It reminds me of what the scripture says, that the Jewish people who have been the tail will be the head. You know, in the Messianic kingdom, the Jewish people are going to have a special role to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jews had lightness and uh, light and gladness and joy and honor. And many of the people of the land became Jews, it says at the end of chapter 8, because fear of the Jews fell upon them. This is a great example of the reversal of 
Satan's goals, right? Just like with the crucifixion, and I would say in a minor way, the crucifixion is the greatest example of Satan thinking he had won a victory when Jesus dies, and three days later, mm. the Messiah is resurrected, right? Mm-hmm. So here he thinks he's going to have all the Jewish people killed by this decree, and instead the Jewish people come into ascendancy. Yeah. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who treats you with contempt I will curse. Yeah. Genesis 12.3. Yeah, well, Genesis 12.3 should be enough for anybody who's a Bible reader to treat the Jewish people lovingly, with respect. And of course, we want to go beyond uh, just being cordial with people. We want to love them enough to share the good news with them. And uh, that's what we've been doing at Life and Messiah uh, by God's grace and his faithfulness since 1887. Uh, you know, the the early church, Wes, had had the book of Esther. The early church had the book of Genesis. Uh, the early church have had everything that you and I do in terms of the scriptures. There's nothing uh, that we're informed of in terms of the biblical record that they weren't. And yet, we see throughout the ages that Christians have erred in some major ways when it comes to Israel and the Jewish people. And I don't want to be in error when it comes to the apple of God's eye. Uh, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And so I think part of making sure that doesn't happen is to make sure that everything I'm taking in is God's truth not what the world is telling me, not what the media is telling me about things. So taking in, first and foremost, God's truth. And one of the areas uh, in which I meet quite a few believers uh, where there is a general lack of knowledge when it comes to the Jewish people is in the area of Christian anti-Semitism and the the past history that we have had. Uh, You've been to Yad Vashem I've been to Yad Vashem, but for those who haven't, I think it's really important for everyone to know. When you begin your tour at Yad Vashem, one of the first things you read is from a Christian theologian. You're talking about the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. Yes, the Yad Vashem is the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And there's a quote from a church father as one of the first things that you read. And I think that is so important for believers to know that ultimately there have been many, many anti-Semitic acts that have been committed. And many people have committed those acts and they've used the writings of the early church fathers as the foundation for why they're doing what they're doing. And that is a horrible testimony of the Lord. That's a horrible testimony uh, to our Jewish friends. And so what was really helpful for me is when I started to learn about these things that have happened throughout history, first of all, I was like, whoa, no one ever told me this before. Why not? Like, why, why are we trying to keep this history hidden? I don't understand. Are we afraid people are going to leave the church? Are we, what are we afraid of? Also, it really helped me understand where Jewish people are coming from when they, for instance, refuse to enter a church building. Or when they say, why would I want anything to do with Jesus when his people have done so much harm to my people over the centuries? Those statements make no sense unless you're aware of what's actually happened in history. Well, you're exactly right. 
uh, I had no idea. You know, I'm an evangelical preacher's kid. And, you know, the first time I heard the statement, Christians hate Jews, I thought, well, where did that come from? If there's ever a non sequitur, words that shouldn't be put together, it's Christian anti-Semitism. You know, those two words should not ever be put together, but unfortunately they are. To illustrate what a barrier this is, Levi, one day I was on the street corners of Brooklyn just a couple of years ago, and a rabbi came running up to me, and he said, look, I have no time for you. (laughs) Um, He had an appointment he had to get to. He said, I just have one question. Why are you part of such a religion of hate? Mm. And, you know, if he had asked me that question when I first began in ministry, I would have had no idea what he was talking about. But just like you said, you know, this was a cipher. It was a blank spot in my understanding of history. But believe me, the Jewish people know these things. Yes. And yesterday on the platform during the Sunday morning service, I had 15 people from the audience stand up, each held a balloon in their hands, and there was a date on it. And as we read the date and what happened on that date, then they popped the balloon. So there was actually an audible explosion as uh, kind of this visual audio uh, illustration of what happens when, in history, Jewish people are treated unkindly by the church. So if you'd like, I can run through those very quickly. There's 15 of them. So, yeah, yeah um, let's run through these very quickly. I'm, I'm looking at the slides here. Let's start off with 306. What um, happened in 306? So some of these councils you won't have heard of, but the Council of Elvira, first of all, they prohibited intermarriage between Christians and Jews. If you were Jewish, you couldn't marry a Christian or vice versa. And Christians and Jews couldn't even eat together. You couldn't share a meal together. And Christians could not observe the Jewish Sabbath. I'm sure many of our listeners have gone to a Messiah in the Passover presentation, which we love to see people seeing the connection between the Lord's table, what we call communion, and the Passover Seder. But according to the Council of Elvira, that couldn't happen back in 306 AD. Okay, 306. Let's move to 325, the Council of Nicaea. I know you've talked about Nicaea on the Tove podcast before uh, for a variety of reasons, primarily because that's when the date of Easter gets changed, right? Up until that time, if we were living in the first couple of centuries of the church, we would look at the calendar to see when is Passover, and we would celebrate Resurrection Sunday on the first day of the week after Passover. But that got changed in Nicaea, and now it's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. And I dare anybody to find that in Scripture, but that's what the Council of Nicaea did. But they also prohibited Christians from celebrating Passover with Jewish people. That's unbelievable. So if the Council of Nicaea had not made certain decisions, Christians might still be celebrating the Passover today. You know, in most every language that I know of, and I don't speak a lot of languages, but uh, in Russian and in Spanish and Portuguese, you know, the Romance languages, they refer to Easter Sunday as Pascha or mm. some reference, which comes directly from Pesach, the Paschal Lamb, right? Uh, but in English, we have Easter. So we've even changed the terminology of the holiday to remove it from its Jewish roots. Yeah, yeah. And the Council of Nicaea, was that Constantine? Yeah, so Constantine became an, a convert to Christianity. He's actually the one who convened the Council of Nicaea in order to clarify some important Christian doctrines. So some really good things happened at Nicaea, but as far as severing a connection with our Jewish roots— And I don't know if the invitation to the Jewish bishops in the 4th century church got lost in the mail, but they didn't show up at the council. Mm. They weren't represented. Yeah. 
347 to 407, we have a guy called John, the golden-mouthed preacher Christostom. That's right. And for most of us, he's just a name, and we know that he was a, a great preacher. But he also said some pretty terrible things with that golden mouth of his. For example, he describes the Jewish people as degenerate, lustful, rapacious, greedy, perfidious bandits is one of his quotes. And he also talked about their odious assassination of Christ. So the deicide charge, you know, you killed God, you killed our Savior, has been one of the greatest causes for persecution of the Jewish people in the name of Jesus. Yeah, which can be refuted with a couple texts of Scripture. And in case you're reading a commentary or your friend tells you that the Jewish people are, are guilty as a whole for the death of Christ and they're perpetually guilty, uh, just open your Bible to Acts 4.27. Acts 4.27 tells us that there was a group of people there that day that included Gentiles and Romans. In addition to this, uh, Jesus tells us actually that he lays down his life of his own accord, and he has the authority to lay it down and pick it up again. And so no one took Jesus's life from him. Uh, he laid it down willingly for your sins and mine. Let's, uh, 589, we have another council, the Council of I'm not going to try to pronounce that. Well, it's Narbonne. It's just one of those French names of a city. Jewish people are forbidden to recite their prayers aloud under penalty of a heavy fine. So now we're back to the book of Esther. You cannot live among us as Jews, right? You need to assimilate. We'll let you stay in town, but you can't be praying out loud your Hebrew prayers. Mm. And are all, are all of these councils church councils? Yes. Yeah, these are all church councils. So we can't just chalk this up to some kind of anti-Semitic political figure that didn't have anything to do with the church, um, even though the church and the state might have been combined at certain times throughout history. Uh, from an outsider's perspective, this is the church's position. Well, and I think it's also important to note that there have always been a remnant of true believers in, in the church, right? It's easy to castigate the church at large. Um, there have always been people, there have always been people among the Jewish people who have been true to the God of Israel, and there have always been Gentiles who have been true to the Lord as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is, the challenge that we have, Levi, is that the Jewish people see Europe as Christian, right? So this is Christian Europe. And it's sad but true, but the Jewish people have actually done better under Muslim rule than mm-hmm. in, under Christian rule. And, and these evidences that we're bringing forth illustrate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's move to 681, where we have the 12th Council of Toledo. Yeah, aren't you glad we're not having to go through the first 11 councils of yeah. Toledo? So this is in Spain. The Jewish people are ordered to accept baptism. So this is, you cannot live among us as Jews again. This is another, you must assimilate. So this is forced conversion. If you're going to stay in our country, you want to remain in Spain, then you have to undergo church baptism. And you lose your identity as a Jew um, you no longer associate with anything Jewish, and you also get a Christian name. So maybe your name was, you know, Shlomo Ben Chaim, but now your name is Pablo Cristiani. And then we go to 1096, um, really an infamous year in the church's yeah, history. So I'm in junior high school, and we have to do these research papers, and I don't, I don't remember what I did mine on, but one of my best friends, he did one on the children's crusade. And man, it sounded glorious, you know. Yeah, these kids had swords and and shields, and 
you know, onward Christian soldiers. You know, it sounded like, wow, man, it would be great to be a part of that. Can you imagine? But I had no idea what the Crusades actually were. So you have Europeans who are going to throw off the yoke of the infidel from Jerusalem, right? The the Moors, the, the Muslims were in charge of Jerusalem, and so the Crusaders were going to go and rest the W-R-E-S-T, rest the, uh, the city from Muslim hands. But along the way, in cities in France, for example, when they found French Jewish villages, they killed the Jewish people who were there. And if you read the record of what happened after the Crusaders got to Jerusalem and they besieged the city, um, and then they finally breached the walls, and the record of the horror of what was inflicted on the Muslims and the Jewish people alike in the city of Jerusalem, it's, it's sickening. It's certainly not something you want to read before a meal. Yeah. And this is the you cannot live, right? This is not we're going to assimilate or evacuate you. This is we're going to annihilate you. Yeah. Um, less than a century later, in 1182, something happened. Yeah, there are many illustrations of this, but this is one. Uh, this is an edict of expulsion from Christian France. The Jewish people can't live among us. So this is an evacuate slide. Mm. And in 1215, we have another council. This is the Canon 68 of the Fourth Lateran Council. And um, what happened there? So first record that we have in history of the Jewish people being forced to wear a self-identifier. So they're wearing a badge that identifies them as Jewish. We're more familiar with that from later in history, but 1215 is the first record of it that I found. Uh, and the Jewish people are not allowed to appear in public at Easter time. I remember Dr. Goldberg, when I took Jewish studies at Moody back in the 70s, and he talked about how Christians refer to um, Palm Sunday to Easter as Holy Week. And he shook his head. He said, for the Jewish people, it was Hell Week mm. because the deicide charge particularly was brought up then, and Jewish people were beaten up and, and killed uh, at Easter time. Wow. And in 1290, uh, King Richard I did something. Yeah, this is a guy named Longshanks. You know, for those of you who are into history, King Richard I, Longshanks, expels all the Jewish people from England. So if you're Jewish, you cannot live in the Commonwealth of England. And it took 350 years before Cromwell reversed that. Can you imagine 350 years, no Jewish people can live in our land, is what they said. That was the law. Mm. In 1347 to 1350, the Jewish people are accused of causing what? Well, this is the Black Death, the bubonic plague. So because of COVID, everybody's familiar with plagues and how they spread. Um, We talk about the Spanish flu back in 1918 here in North America and around the world. But the bubonic plague really killed thousands and thousands of people. Because of their laws regarding hygiene, sometimes the Jewish people were spared from the massive deaths that the Black Plague inflicted. And so, of course, the devil uses that as an opportunity to say, well, hey, they're not getting sick like we are, so they're the cause of it. This is a Jewish conspiracy against Christians. And so over 200 Jewish communities were destroyed as a result. You cannot live among us. Mm. In 1478, there was a church-sanctioned Inquisition. I used to think of the Inquisition as just kind of a a one event, uh, but the Inquisition actually uh, 
was something that was established by the Roman Church and lasted until just recent uh, generation or two ago. The Inquisition was formally closed. But we know of Torquemada, the uh, inqui- the Grand Inquisitor, and the kinds of torture that he inflicted and the people who were killed, um, but a lot of Jewish people. And here's the thing. I, you talk about wickedness. So in the name of Jesus, we tell Jewish people, okay, you have to leave the country. We're going we're gonna to expel you. But if you're going to stay here, then you're going to have to be converted. So we're forcibly converting you. And then having said, if you're going to live among us, you have to live among us as Christians, then we doubt the authenticity and sincerity of their conversion, hmm. right? So now we're sending people into Jewish homes to see, oh, do you still have a menorah? Hey, are you eating matzah at Passover time, right? So these secret Jews, they were called the Moranos by the inquisitors. Conversos is another term, the, those who were forcibly converted. If they're found not to be genuine <laughs> in their profession of faith, which they only made so that they could live, um, then now we're going to kill them. So mm. thousands are burned at the stake. You cannot live. Yeah, and, and their property, uh, their wealth, were then confiscated by the church. Now, I've heard uh, some say, and I don't know the, the validity of this, that you know if that happened in 1478, it was only about 14 years later that Columbus set sail, and I've heard that his expedition was funded by the confiscation of property from the Jewish people of Spain. Right. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Ferdinand and Isabella, who funded, you know, the king and queen, who funded, also issued in 1492 an edict of expulsion. Wow. So, yes, Jewish people were kicked out, and the assumption is that their monies went into the treasury. Mm. And then we get to um, a real heartbreaker, Wes. In 1543, the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, published a pamphlet called On the Jews and Their Lies. Yes, I think most of our listeners, especially if you've been around for a while, can cite examples where there is a Christian leader, someone that you really respected, someone that you held in high esteem, and maybe somebody who who mentored you or who fed you through their Bible teaching, um, and then you find a major flaw in their character. Um, and, and just that stab of your heart that says, oh, no, I can't believe this. That's how I felt when I heard this about Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, there is so much to honor him for. You know, he, he stood up at the risk of his own life to say the Bible is our sole authority. We are beneficiaries of, of the Ref- Reformation, and I don't want to not honor him for the things that he did well. When he first got saved, you know the story, Levi, um, God stirred his heart from Romans. He understood that justification was by grace through faith, that it's not by works, it's not by joining a church or being baptized or any of the things, you know, Paul says clearly in Scripture, it's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. And, and Luther reveled in this, the, the grace of God. Uh, sola gratia is one of the solas of the Reformation, only grace. And he, he thought to himself, you know, if the Jewish people just could hear this, 
If they would understand the clear presentation of the gospel like I now do, then surely they would become believers. And he actually wrote tracts <laughs> without handing out broadsides, as it were, pamphlets to encourage the Jewish people to come to faith. And I don't know what happened, but sometime toward the end of his life, he got hardening of the heart, not hardening of the arteries. And he writes this booklet called On the Jews of Their Lies, and Their Lies. You know, and I know about Einfesteburg, the Mighty Fortresses Are God. I know about the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Door, the Diet of Worms. You know, here I stand, I can do no other. I, I knew those stories about Martin Luther, but I didn't know about on the Jews and their lives. But the Jewish people do. This is, this is what the rabbi had in mind when he said, Wes, how can you be a part of such a religion of hatred? Because he advocated, Luther advocated the burning of Jewish homes and synagogues and expelling the Jewish people from Germany. Now, he didn't invent the idea. The church and, and nations have been expelling Jewish people from European cities for centuries. But he said, so that you and me may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. So he had a heart. He had God's heart for the Jewish people early in his conversion. But the devil, I would say, you know, this is another example of how when our thoughts are not aligned with scriptural truth, how we can be deceived. So that he actually had enmity toward, animosity toward, the Jewish people, you cannot live among us. Evacuate. Yeah. It was a hard book to get through. I had to read the book and write a paper on it. And I think for our listeners out there, this is, I think this is why it's so important for us to be informed about the past. Not so that we can simply um, dwell on it and talk about how bad things were. But rather, it's to make sure these mistakes are not repeated again. And that is our desire for you as well, is that you guard your heart from any kind of hatred, but especially hatred of the Jewish people. And God forbid anti-Semitism continues to increase here in the States. It will be so crucial for the church to make sure that we stand in front of the Jewish people, really, in making sure that we're communicating love, we're communicating against all hatred toward the Jewish people, and we're not falling prey to the devil's temptations. We're not falling prey to the world's oldest hatred, and that is anti-Semitism, and it comes directly from the pit of hell. Let's move on to 1654. Right, now we're going to change continents. We've been in Europe all this time, but we're going to move over to the New World. In 1654, there was a town called New Amsterdam, today known as New York City. Mm. And the peg-legged governor, a Dutch man by the name of Peter Stuyvesant, stumps down to the pier one day because a ship has arrived in port. And he's there to welcome the newcomers. So what happened? In 1654, there was war between Portugal and Holland. And a city in Recife, in Brazil, called Recife, had a Jewish population, a port city. And it was under attack from the Portuguese. And the, the Dutch citizens there knew that if the city fell, they'd be in trouble. So they got on board a ship and started setting sail back for the Netherlands. But they were attacked on the high seas by pirates. And the closest port that they could get to, because all their clothing and supplies, the food, were taken by the pirates, so they needed to find a port quickly. And the closest one was New Amsterdam. Well, among the passengers on board were the first group of Jewish 
people. There were 23 Jewish people on board that ship. Mm. And when Stuyvesant sees these Jewish people, he's not so welcoming. In fact, he's a little bit horrified. And he writes a letter back to the Dutch West India Company, and he says, the Jews who have arrived would nearly all like to remain here, but learning that they, with their customary usury and deceitful trading with Christians, we ask that the deceitful race, such hateful enemies and blasphemers of the name of Christ, be not allowed to further infect and trouble this new colony. Mm. So here's a man, ostensibly Christian, who has this view of the Jewish people that they're like some kind of virus that's going to infect the new world. And so he says, I want to send them on their way. There must have been some Jewish influence in the Dutch West India Company, or at least some people who had God's heart for the Jewish people because they wrote back and said, leave them alone, let them remain. And aren't we thankful that we have a Jewish community here in America today? Absolutely. Well, that brings us to a much more recent event, which uh, certainly all of our listeners are familiar with, and that is 1933 to 1945, uh, Adolf Hitler's implementation of the final solution to, quote, the Jewish problem. Sure, and as you've noted, we've, we're fast-forwarding through this. You know, We can't really call these highlights. They're more lowlights, but there are many more. Uh, from 1654 up, to, up until 1933, there are lots of things that could be cited, but everybody knows about the final solution. You know, how can you explain Hitler's hatred for the Jewish people? It's, it's satanic at its root. Six million Jewish people. You know, Levi, the, the Jewish population of the world has not yet quite climbed back to what it was before 1945. Wow. Anti-Semitism was perfected to a science. Think of all the German ingenuity and engineering uh, devoted to the annihilation. What, what Haman wanted to do in the book of Esther, to kill all the Jewish people everywhere in the world, was the agenda that Hitler set off on. Mm. And I'm so glad that um, God roused the nations of the West to fight against Nazism because at the heart of it is anti-Semitism. Yeah. And then just uh, briefly, of course, we have anti-Semitism here in the United States. Um, it's not yet reached the level of expulsion um, or eradication. Uh, but we're here to say we see some major warning signs. And, um, and the church, especially in the U.S., uh, needs to be a voice against this hatred. In 2018... There were 11 worshipers uh, that were killed, murdered, uh, along with six wounded at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue. In 2019, uh, there was one murdered and three injured by a shooter at a Chabad synagogue in Poway, California. And in, uh, as, as was mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Wes, the Anti-Defamation League has received 193 reports of anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. during just the first week of the Israel-Hamas conflict compared to 131 the week before. Um, You and I found ourselves last week in the great city of Dallas, Texas, where we convened with a lot of other ministry colleagues, folks who share God's heart for the Jewish people. And 
of course, here at Life and Messiah, we're not the only ones seeing this alarming trend of hatred against our Jewish friends. And so um, the organization uh, whose banner we met under is called the LCJE, or the Lausanne Consultation on Jewish Evangelism. The organization saw fit to really uh, create a statement and publish that statement on behalf of uh, all those who were represented at this conference. And so I thought I might take time uh, just to read for our listeners this statement. And then what we're going to do, of course, is post this as well on the Life and Messiah website. Uh, If you'd like to take that link from our Life and Messiah website and share it with your friends and family, um, just as a tool for awareness of the rise of anti-Semitism, that would be wonderful. And if if we can be a resource for you at Life and Messiah, if, if you'd like one of our staff members here to come out to your church or your small group or whatever it might be, and to speak about God's heart for the Jewish people, uh, and to share from the scriptures, as, as Wes has done here today, on why anti-Semitism is so misplaced, uh, not only for everybody, but especially in the heart of somebody who calls themselves a follower of the Jewish Messiah. Uh, we'd love to serve you in that way, even if it's just a Zoom call presentation, or if we can be there in person with you, that's wonderful as well. Just visit lifeandmessiah.org. Uh, you can send us a message and fill out a form and request a staff member to come visit you wherever you are. So here is the uh, final version of the conference uh, call against anti-Semitism. And Wes, you feel free to stop me anytime if you want to expound on anything here. Uh, this statement was published on June 9th of 2021. It says, The annual gathering of the North American Lausanne Consultation on Jewish Evangelism met in Irving, Texas on June 6th through the 9th of 2021. 25 agencies, seven congregations, and many individuals were among more than 80 attendees. Anti-Semitism is on the rise across the globe, and we are seeing an alarming increase here in North America as well. Findings published in the new Pew study on American Jews report greater than 75% of Jews surveyed say that there is more anti-Semitism in the United States today than five years ago. And six in ten Jewish people report having direct personal experience with anti-Semitism in the last 12 months. In the aftermath of the rocket attacks on Israel, incidents are taking place in the United States and Canada at an unprecedented rate. The Anti-Defamation League reported that in the week after the fighting erupted, it found on Twitter more than 17,000 tweets using variations of the phrase, Hitler was right. Hate speech is only part of the attack. Jewish places of business are being vandalized, synagogues graffitied with swastikas, individual Jews assaulted, and worse. This reprehensible venom of hatred for the Jews being spewed out is reminiscent of a past that culminated in the Holocaust. We, as Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus, lift our voices in unity with and love for the global Jewish community to address this scourge now in the strongest of terms. While our society is polarized in many ways, we respond with one voice to express the love and hope our Messiah brings to a broken world. 
We know God's heart is grieved when the apple of his eye, Zechariah 2.8, is under attack. We affirm that help for the Jewish community comes from on high. We grieve as well and affirm with the psalmist who declared, My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121, 2-4. In conclusion, uh, there are a few resources out there. If you're interested in uh, verifying uh, some of the things we talked about uh, that have happened in history, uh, one of the books I've recommended to you before, it's called Future Israel. It's by Pastor Barry Horner. You can get it on Amazon.com in either print copy or Kindle. I'd also recommend uh, Dr. Michael Brown's book called Our Hands Are Stained with Blood. And of course, uh, Edward Flannery uh, has a pretty extensive book called The Anguish of the Jews, uh, where he does an extensive uh, look into some of the past atrocities committed at the hands of Christians. So I hope that you found this episode helpful. You can uh, listen to previous episodes of the Tove podcast by visiting lifeandmessiah.org or find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at Life and Messiah, may you joyfully share God's heart for the Jewish people and speak out against anti-Semitism in all its forms. Shalom.